Theology is oftentimes an adventure in missing the point. Indeed, the image of the theologian conjures, at best, a detached, disinterested spectator on earthly events. But what if a mostly orthodox Christianity had something vital to say to the world around it? What if, in the words of the great black liberation theologian James Cone, theology was really political language? This is Public Theologians. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Theologians. I'm Casey Hobbs, and I'm so glad you're joining us. Today's conversation is with Shelia Gregoire. She is the author of The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies You've Been Taught, and How to Recover What God Intended. This book deals with the repercussions of decades of horrible teaching from the evangelical Christian church on marriage and sexuality. And this particularly relates to how women have been treated throughout the course of this conversation and the fallout of, again, this very patriarchal teaching stream that we know very well if we are evangelicals or familiar with or ex-evangelicals or whatever. So this is a really great conversation. I'm excited to share it with you. One thing before we get going is that you can support this show on Patreon. You can support it for $15 a month, which will get you a fancy coffee cup, or $5 a month, which will get you a fancy sticker. Any Patreon support will get you access to a trove of unedited videos with past and future guests and some content that I'm working on right now that you can only get as a Patreon subscriber. You can also support the show for free by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and that will really get the show out to a wider audience, and particularly this conversation I want to get out to as wide an audience as we can. So all of your support is so appreciated, and I thank you for listening to this conversation with Shelia Gregoire. Oshelia Gregoire, thank you so much for joining us on Public Theologians. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So first, can you tell us about your new book, The Great Sex Rescue? And we'll start there. Yeah. So we decided to do something that's 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 never been done before. We thought we would go big or go home. Um, we did the largest survey of Christian women's marital and sexual satisfaction that's ever been done. So we surveyed 20,000 women, over 18,000 of whom were Christian. And we asked them about their marital satisfaction, their sexual satisfaction. And we got like really seriously up close and personal in those questions. And, uh, and then we asked them a series of even common evangelical teachings. And we said, were you ever taught these? And did you ever believe them at two different points in time? And because we asked that, what we were able to do afterwards was analyze, are there certain teachings that correlate to really nasty marriage and sexual outcomes? And that's what we did. (laughs) Yeah. So you surveyed several books. I think you have 14 in Mm -hmm. the index there. Can you tell us about some of the ones that you leaned on pretty heavily? Yeah. So what we did is we wanted to find out which teachings really hurt sex for women. And then once we figured that out, we wanted to figure out where the teachings came from and how big an issue this was, because we, we, we could just envision us publishing this book and everyone saying, oh, but nobody actually teaches that. And oh, you're making, you're making something out of nothing. They'll probably say anyways, judging by the reactions and critiques of past guests like Kristen Kobes Dume and Beth Allison Barr, all of their critiques I mean, I'm sure that you can expect the same if you haven't got those already uh, from the very intellectual crowd. Anyways. (laughs) Yes. 
Definitely. But so, so what we did is we looked at the, the top 10 best selling marriage books mm -hmm. and we looked at um, six iconic sex books um, in the Christian realm. And of the marriage books, we looked at like three really didn't talk about sex. So we just excluded them from our study. So we had seven marriage books, six sex books. And then we looked at the top best selling marriage book that was in the secular market, which is John Gottman's and see, you know, which ones tell the healthy messages. Yeah, absolutely. Which the John Gottman, anything by the Gottmans is great. And I recommend mm -hmm. them highly. But yeah, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll talk more about that. I, I really like that you use that as a control because they've done research. And yes. um, like you said, you guys did an incredible amount of research. Tell us about the time frame because I thought that was pretty incredible. Just the time frame of doing the research, putting it together, analyzing it and putting this book out. Yeah, it was, it was a very, very, very hectic year last year. So this all started in January of 2019. Um, I've been blogging about sex and marriage for years. Uh, I've been in that space for years. I blog at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. I started off as a mommy blogger, you know, writing about housework and parenting little kids and all that. And the more I wrote about sex, the more my traffic grew. So I started writing more and more about sex. I started researching more and more. I do have two postgraduate degrees um, in public health and sociology. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm kind of in that space academically anyway. Um, but I started researching more. I wrote a number of books on sex, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, 31 Days to Great Sex. We created courses, but I hadn't actually read a lot of evangelical books on marriage and sex because I always had this real fear that I was going to plagiarize or someone's going to get mad at me. So I really <laughs> Which was writing fun, my own stuff. Funny to read. You mentioned that in the book. <laughs> I, was, I know. Well, I like, doubt totally. that you would and have then, plagiarized any of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because it happens to people, right? So I, really, I wanted to make sure all the thoughts were my own. So then... This one day, I just, I have a migraine. I'm in a bad mood. I don't want to work. And I'm looking for any excuse not to. Um, and there was this Twitter debate going on uh, from this woman who was saying that she really needed respect and not just love. And mm. she was alluding to Emerson Egrich's book, Love and Respect, which is a huge, it's the second biggest selling marriage book in evangelicalism, second only to the five love languages. And it's the most studied book. Like if a church is going to do a marriage study, it's love and respect that they use. Um, and I had it in my, in my cupboard. I just never read it. So I went and pulled it down and being a sex person, I, I turned to the sex chapter. I didn't read the rest of it then. Mm -hmm. um, and I was horrified. You know, it said, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. And a husband has a need for physical release through sexual intimacy. And he'll come under satanic attack if he doesn't get release. And you have to minister to your husband sexually as unto Jesus Christ. And if you don't, he'll probably have an affair because most affairs are caused by women not having sex sure. um, and do not deprive him. There wasn't a single, not a single allusion to the fact that women are supposed to feel pleasure too, or even that we're capable of feeling pleasure. In fact, he even says, why would you deprive him of something which takes such a short amount of time and makes him so happy? So <laughs> like he's bragging about how fast sex is, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I found that particularly amusing, just kind of reviewing that. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm, I'm reading the same thing, holy cow, like, is this really the message that we're giving about sex in the evangelical church? And so my team and I, you know, we, we, um, we talked about love and respect on the blog for a week. Um, we got a lot of feedback from women, not necessarily about the sex part of the book, although that was bad enough, but more how the book as a whole enabled abuse in their marriage, which mm. made us really concerned. Um, we created a report and sent it to focus on the family and they ignored us um, for a mm. year. And so because they ignored us, we decided that we would go big or go home and do this study. Um, and it's just, it's weird how it turns out because while we were creating the, the book proposal for this, one of my co-authors, Joanna Sawatsky, who is an epidemiologist and a statistician, she had a life-threatening miscarriage. Like she literally did almost mm. die. Um, my daughter was pregnant, Rebecca Lindenbach, who's our psychometrics person and wrote our survey and did most of the editing for the book. She, um, she finished the survey two days postpartum. And then the survey was done by January. We had to finish the book by May 
last May. And, um, and then we did the final edits in August when Joanna was two weeks postpartum when she had her, her next baby. And so, and I was going through menopause. So you have like these three <laughs> totally hormonal women. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> writing this book in an incredibly short amount of time, but we couldn't have done it on our own. We needed each of our skill sets and, uh, but I'm so glad the data's out there now. So yeah, absolutely, and and it really is some incredible data. Like you said, there's 20,000 women that y'all surveyed, and the data that you pulled down shows that that was some intensive work in in the surveys themselves, even putting them together, let alone mm-hmm. getting all the responses. So I thought that was really incredible, and and in contrast to the books that you mentioned it has quite a bit of research. Can you just quickly mention, I think I interrupted you and sidetracked my own question, which my apologies happens quite a bit, but going back to the control books, not the control book, but the ones compared against the the Gottman's book, Mm -hmm. just kind of some highlights. You mentioned the um, love and respect book, but can you kind of just hit the main players so we know the listeners know which ones we're talking about? So once we did our survey, once we had the survey results and we knew which teachings were harmful, we also did a literature review. So we looked at peer reviewed research to see what they said about healthy sexuality messages. And we, we created a list of 12 markers for healthy sexuality teaching. And, um, and then we delineated you know, what's, what would be a zero and what would be a four. So from zero to four, let's rate all the books on each of those 12, 12 markers. So the highest score you get is 48. Gottman got 47. Sure. So Gottman was really, really good. Um, the Gift of Sex by the Penners, which is an evangelical book, also got 47. Really good book. Really enjoyed it. Um, and then Love and Respect got zero. <laughs> zero. Like, literally zero. <laughs> and like he could not have done worse. And um, most of the books that we looked at fell into the harmful category. So we had harmful books, neutral books, and helpful books. And the majority of them fell into the harmful category. Books like Every Man's Battle, um, For Women Only, Power of a Praying Wife, um, uh, Sheet Music, uh, The Act of Marriage. These all, these all were, were harmful books. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no surprise there having read some of those having been subject to some small groups on at least one of those books uh, in the past. Yeah, just uh, just some incredible conjecture on the part of the authors on what actually makes for a healthy sexuality and, and not a lot of real even research, um, not a lot of thought. I, I thought one really interesting point is that you talked about the the distinction of Christian women and and having um, having this uh, and I'm going to butcher the the pronunciation of this word, but vag, vag can, vaginismus can you, vaginismus. Thank you yes. uh, again, which illustrates the fact that I had not even heard of of this particular um, medical condition until reading your book, mm-hmm. but. You mentioned in 1979 that it was known that this is a condition that is exponentially more prevalent among the Christian community than the non-Christian community. Can you just talk about yep. why that would be? Because that's distressing. And yep. Okay, so yes. first of all, if I were to say erectile dysfunction, you would know what I'm talking about. Sure, absolutely. Everybody does. If you yeah. watch Price is Right or Wheel of Fortune, <laughs> yeah. you know what we're yeah. talking about, right? It's advertised. Um, and yet of couples under the age of 45, vaginismus is far more common. Hmm. And like we said, in Christian communities, it's long been known that it's at least twice the rate of the general population. Twice the rate. And what vaginismus is, is it's, um, it's a condition where the wall, the vaginal wall muscles contract, like they squeeze, they're really, really tight and they can't relax. It's involuntary. She isn't causing it. Um, but it's something which, which makes sex extremely painful, if not impossible or penetration anyway, extremely Mm -hmm. painful, if not impossible. And gynecologists have known for years that religiously conservative women suffer from this at a much higher rate. What wasn't known is why, 
And so what we wanted to figure out, and this is one of the reasons why we wanted so many participants in our survey was we wanted enough women with vaginismus that we could drill down on the why. And we found a rate of 22% of women have experienced um, sexual pain. Uh, like aside from childbirth, and then Mm -hmm. another 29% had experienced sexual pain after childbirth. Um, And a total of 7% of women have experienced it to such an extent that penetration is impossible, Mm. which again is a much higher rate than the general population. And as we looked at the beliefs, we did find one particular belief that's highly correlated with vaginismus. And it's this idea that Emerson Eggers was talking about in Love and Respect that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. As soon as you tell her she's obligated, vaginismus rates go way up. And it's interesting because the statistical effect of the obligation sex message on vaginismus is almost the same as the statistical effect of having been abused. Wow. So women's bodies literally interpret the obligation sex message as trauma because both abuse and the obligation sex message say to women, your needs don't matter. He has the right to use you however he wants. And that is a traumatic message. And that is also the message that our 13 evangelical books that we studied scored collectively the worst on. Yeah, and I, I think that's incredible. In your book as well, you mentioned, uh, I suppose at least a couple of those books were initially written before that research in 1979 came out, but they all have had editions coming out far mm-hmm. after that that don't address that whatsoever. And yeah, I mean, just the, I think the irresponsibility is mm-hmm. pretty pretty damning. So kind of to transition that into some of the some of the questions that I had as well. So speaking of a biblical marriage and a biblical sexuality, for listeners of the podcast, you probably know that I'm skeptical of using terms like biblical to describe <laughs> what is our nuclear family today. A mm-hmm. biblical view of marriage can justify patriarchy, polygamy, Paul's exhortations to just remain single and so on. So you might say the same thing about sexuality. There are warnings about things going wrong, particularly in Paul's writings again. But our best reference may be Song of Solomon, which is so plainly erotic and wild that church fathers nearly all interpreted it allegorically. So what I really appreciate about your work is that when you say biblical, you seem to me something more than just justifying the way things have always been and should always be whatever that means. So tell us what you mean when you talk about biblical marriage and sexuality. Yeah, so I kind of have three words that I like to use because I think they sum up everything. In the book, we expand it a little bit. (laughs) Um, But there's three words that I think encapsulate the big picture messages of what sex is in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the first one is that it's intimate. And we see this, it's, it's a weird verse. Um, but Genesis four, verse one says, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they conceived a son. And mm-hmm. I remember being 13 years old, sitting in a pew, wooden pew in my Presbyterian church. And the pastor reads that. And we all, I'm sitting beside my friends. We all start laughing because this is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Right. And my mother's giving me the look, you know, but <laughs> we all thought that God was embarrassed to use the real word. Sure. <laughs> but when you look at the Hebrew there, it's just, it's really cool because mm-hmm. it's the same Hebrew word that David uses in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me, oh God, mm-hmm. you know, know my inmost heart. And I think God was saying that sex is more than physical. Emerson Egerich might think it's just about physical release, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it is a deep and intimate knowing between two people. And that means that both people have to matter. Yeah, You can't have an intimate knowing of someone whose needs doesn't matter. So, so you have an intimate and intimacy there in sex in song of Solomon, which you've already mentioned, highly erotic, you know, sex is pleasurable and it's pleasurable for both, not just for one. They're both having an awfully good time. Yep. And then in, in first Corinthians seven, a passage, which I actually highly agree with, but I think almost all of us interpret wrong. (laughs) Um, what we see is that sex is completely and utterly mutual. Hmm. 
you know, um, that's where Paul says that uh, the husband must fulfill his marital duties to his wife. So the husband's duties are mentioned first there, by the way. Um, the wife to her husband, the husband's body doesn't belong to him alone, but also to the wife, the wife's body belongs to the husband, um, and do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. And for a time that you might devote yourselves to prayer and fasting, but then come together so that you won't be tempted by your lack of self-control. And so many people use those verses to tell women, therefore you can't say no. And that's not what those verses say. (laughs) You know, yeah. those verses say that we're not supposed to deprive each other, do our marital duty of sex. And what is sex? That's the central question. What is sex? Well, sex is something which is mutual and intimate and pleasurable. And so one-sided intercourse is not sex. If you can't tell her, therefore you need to give him intercourse when he wants because she's already being deprived in that case. Yeah. And, and that's what we're all forgetting. Like I, one of the big things, like if everyone listening, if you only remember one thing from this podcast, remember the number 47, okay? 47. I think in, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, isn't 47 the answer to life, the universe and everything. But, <laughs> but in this case, like 47 is our orgasm gap. Yeah. Because what we found, well, not us, but other studies of men have found that roughly 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm during a sexual encounter, but the equivalent number for women is only 48. Yeah. So we have a 47 point orgasm gap. Women are already being hugely deprived. And instead of talking about how women need to give men sex more, we should be talking about the clitoris. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that is theologically as sound as a word is has ever been uttered on public theologians (laughs) Uh, yeah I mean I I think that's inescapable and when you talk about intimacy pleasure and mutuality one of the particularly on the mutuality uh, you include an anecdote and I can't remember right now which book it was as uh, most likely the Edrich book <laughs> that that takes quite a quite a beating throughout. <laughs> but there's an anecdote about a a Christian couple that that um, the wife has moved away um, because of uh, because the husband is not treating her well and is not giving him not giving him sex, um, not in, interested, is pulled away from, from him physically. And the advice from the pastoral figure in the story and the anecdote is that that's not mutual because she is, she is pulling away and that's her own decision. And so because they have not come together and made this decision mutually, then it's, then it doesn't count. And so she just needs to put her own feelings aside and give him sex. So yeah, talk, I guess, I guess, talk a little bit more about, you've already kind of mentioned that dynamic in these books and in the surveys that you're talking about, but maybe say just a few more words about that. Yeah, I think what you're referring to is this idea that almost all of the evangelical books we looked at said that you need mutual consent to say no, but they never mentioned that you need mutual consent to say yes. And that is astounding to me, absolutely Mm -hmm. astounding. In fact, the word consent was the word that was missing from all 13 books. It just wasn't there. John Gottman had several pages on consent in marriage and what that would look like. Our books don't. Now, um, I do need to give a caveat. The Gift of Sex does talk about how um, it's the woman who should invite penetration to happen. Like she's the one who has to invite him in and, and she needs to watch it, which is all very good. They just don't have a robust conversation of what, of what non-consent would look like because sure. she might invite him in but not really want to because he could be pressuring her in other ways. And that's what's missing. Um, boundaries in marriage, on the other hand, had a really good I mean, the whole book is great, you know, talking about what manipulation looks like and how we can't coerce someone, but they just didn't really apply that directly to sex, mm-hmm. but on the whole, very, very good book. Right. But again, just not a robust conversation about consent, which wasn't necessarily their job because that's not what they were writing about, but yeah. it's missing from all of our books. And the fact that it is missing, that no one's talking about it is highly problematic. And not just that, but our books have very strange anecdotes where rape is excused. His needs, her needs, um, talked about 
this is a direct quote, as one 32-year-old executive put it, I feel like I'm begging her or even raping her, but I can't help it. I need to make love. And they just left that hang in there. And I'm sorry, but if you feel like you're raping your wife, you probably are and you need to stop. Yeah. That's, that's, there's no, there's no gray area about that. Yeah. I mean, that's, if, if you feel like that might be happening, yeah, that's happening. (laughs) Yeah. And then active marriage gave one of the saddest um, anecdotes that we saw. So it described this young woman who's getting married and her aunt comes to her and just tells her that marriage is just legalized rape and how awful marriage and sex are. And Tim LaHaye, um, who wrote the book, was talking about how awful Aunt Matilda was to do this to her niece and to give her niece such a distorted view of sex. And he, he went on to explain that Aunt Matilda on her wedding night was held down kicking and screaming while her much older husband raped her. And this continued over the course of their marriage. And so this clumsy farmer- Poor clumsy you know, farmer, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, never got to, um, you know, to experience sex. And so Aunt Matilda and her equally unhappy husband. So- and I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, back the truck up. Did he just call the rapist equally unhappy as his rape victim? He sure did. And, and I read the fourth edition of The Act of Marriage. It went through four different editions before the one that I read. That was four different chances for an editor to look at that and say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. And they left it in. Mm-hmm you know, because that is seen as normal in the evangelical church and we need to change it. Consent matters. And um, our survey was completely anonymous, but we did give people the chance to leave their email if they wanted to be contacted for focus groups and mm-hmm. roughly 20% of, of women did. And of those 20%, another 20% said that they had stories to share of marital rape. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, you know, you can't, extrapolate because that wasn't a representative survey but I would just simply say that or that particular sample wasn't representative but I would just simply say that marital rape is a huge issue in the church that we're not talking about yeah okay yeah and that was going to be my next question so from men who commit the act of rape with their wives to men who complain about their wives postpartum or when they're on their period this book is chock full of the behavior that I would just say defines an asshole. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. And and yet, and yet, uh, clearly, you have a high view of men in this in this book. I think that's that's important as well. Can you talk about how evangelical literature encourages and even sanctifies being an asshole? Yeah, well, let me give you two examples. Uh, we'll do Kevin Lehman and we'll do Every Man's Battle because they both they both just did a terrible job. Kevin Lehman had the most bizarre advice. Like he said, he, he told women, if you're if you're having heavier periods than normal, not if you're postpartum or if you're simply not feeling your best, you know, give him a hand job so he doesn't feel like he's going to climb the walls. So he's telling a postpartum woman or a woman who's bleeding heavily that she's responsible for giving him a hand job. Like, I'm sorry, but when you've just pushed a baby out and your milk is coming in and you're not sleeping, that should not be the obligation. But that's the message. Um, and elsewhere, he, he says that this woman, after 10 years of struggling with her husband's porn use, realized that giving her husband oral sex or a hand job during her period was a great way to help him not be tempted. And she realized that faithfulness is a two-person job just staggering so and what i find so funny about this is like god in the old testament literally told men you can't touch your wives for at least seven days Mm -mm. and he expected men to wait and yet the current crop of evangelical authors think that that's too much to ask and it's all because of this rule of 72 um the 72 hour rule that james dobson just announced in 1976 (laughs) that that men can't go more than 72 hours without sex and so women are obligated to give it and we see this 72 hour rule throughout our literature every man's battle had it power of a praying wife um uh 
sheet music had it like multiple places had this and there is no we we scoured the medical literature to find out if men become grumpier at at hour 73 if most men have more of an issue on day four than they do on day two there's nothing in the medical literature it is very varied man on man it's not it's not a rule and yet the evangelical books have made this rule yeah so that's really weird but to me, the most, the worst part is one of the teachings that we measured. So we found four teachings that were really correlated with, with bad sexual outcomes. One of them we've already talked about, a husband is obligated or a wife is obligated to give mm-hmm. her husband sex when he wants it. But the other one is all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. Yeah. Um, and the book, Every Man's Battle, and the whole book series that went with that sold like over 4 million copies. That's what it's all about is how all guys struggle with lust. And it's just simply not true. You know, since, since writing the great sex rescue, we've, we've done a bigger survey of men that's coming out in a book next year, the good guys guide to great sex. Mm -hmm. And we really drilled down on this issue of lust and we found what I thought we would find, which I'm glad about. I was a little nervous, but we (laughs) did find this, which that the majority of men who say they struggle with lust do not actually exhibit any of the behaviors that would count as lust. It's just that we have so conflated sexual attraction with lust that guys think they're lusting simply by existing. Yeah. Uh, Can I read a quick passage in the book that I think really helpfully illustrates that and maybe kind of hear you say more about that? So I'm sorry, I I asked you and then is it okay if I do? Okay. Yes. (laughs) Just to to model consent here. (laughs) So you said... Uh, Let's dissect this passage for a moment. And you're talking about when Jesus takes the uh, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery and expands it to say, do not look lustfully at a woman. Um, So you say, let's let's dissect this passage for a moment. And just that's been used as a cudgel uh, for for years. And it's, I think, a really big part of the every man's battle kind of idea. So you say, let's just dissect this passage for a moment. And it does not say that everyone who sees a woman has committed adultery. It says that a man who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery. Seeing is not wrong. You can't help but see if your eyes are open. Looking on the other hand is a deliberate action, but looking in and of itself is also not wrong. It's looking at her for your sexual gratification that crosses the line. It's not that he sees, it's not even that he looks, it's that he looks with a specific purpose to ogle her and to fantasize about her. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the notion, again, of kind of, and this goes to bouncing your eyes, and this goes to all of the kind of foolishness that um, we're all taught in this purity culture. So, yeah, I think to maybe talk about how that is really leads to a lot of dehumanization, mm-hmm. particularly from, from a female standpoint of, yeah, men are afraid then to look at you. Yeah. Because- you know, it's funny. I've, I've asked on Twitter, how many of you have ever had an experience where a man won't talk to you or won't look at you in church? And almost everyone has who's evangelical. Um, so many women will tell, will tell me I'll be standing with my husband and someone will come and talk to my husband about something he needs to get an answer from, from me, but he won't even look at me. So it's like my husband's yes. translating between the two of us. It's crazy. Uh, but it's this idea that she is ultimately dangerous to him. And he has to bounce his eyes. And as soon as you say that, as soon as you say the answer to lust, because every man's battle has a two-part answer to lust. The first is to transfer your sexual energy from every woman onto your wife. So the goal for a man is instead of objectifying every woman, I'm going to objectify just one woman for the rest of my life. Okay, so he transfers all of his sexual energy from every woman to his wife, and then he bounces his eyes away from every other woman. So he is refusing to see anyone, which means he is still seeing women as sexual objects. They are dangerous to him. Jesus never refused to look at women. Mm -hmm. Jesus chose to truly see women. And he didn't see women as dangerous. He saw women as people. And study after study has shown that the route away from lust is for men to, to learn to see women as whole people, 
rather than just body parts. And what we are teaching men is you need to be scared of women's bodies because they're going to lead you to sin. And so that makes women temptresses. It makes women dangerous. It means you have to, you have to separate yourself from women. And it's a very dehumanizing and objectifying way of looking at your sisters in Christ. Yeah. I, uh, I'm reminded of an anecdote that one of my professors uh, in grad school told. Um, he he talked. He said, "If there, if you had two pastors sitting at a coffee shop, and Miss America walked by in a swimsuit and dropped something and bent over and picked it up, then they would continue the conversation and act like." nothing at all has happened. <laughs> but if you had two construction workers sitting in the same situation, they would just look at each other and say, well, that happened. And they would move on with their lives. But what happens later, you know, with the construction guys, they, they go on with their lives. It's not a big deal. And with the pastors, then because they can't see women as, as equals in this whole humanity thing, they're, then they go home and they're, they have this whole fantasy life that is now playing out um, from this incident. So yeah, I, I think just the fear of seeing people mm -hmm. is endemic to evangelical culture. Yeah, yeah. And we just don't handle it well because when we, when we, say, when we say that the answer to lust is for men to transfer all their energy to their wives. We haven't dealt with the root issue, which is objectification. Yeah. And it's still, you know, every man's battle literally told women, um, once he quits cold turkey, be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. I, I've, sorry, I think that's maybe one of the most offensive things to, to me because I've had friends that <laughs> have had to go on methadone. Um, yeah, just the, the complete insanity of using, mm -hmm. using that as a metaphor, I think is, and it, it's really telling, sorry. Yeah, no, it, it's just, it's, it's flabbergasting. And, um, because what it's really saying is you are a cheap substitute for the real thing. And he's never going to be completely satisfied with you, but you can satiate him enough that he can function in the real world but you're not really what he wants. Yeah. And that, and, and also methadone doesn't actually cure anybody. Right. So this is just, it's just a stopgap measure that you're always going to have to be doing. And uh, it's, it's so dehumanizing. It's so objectifying and it's just simply wrong. Like that isn't the way you cure lust and, and porn use. I mean, the way you cure lust and porn use is you, you learn to deal with your wounds. You learn to become more vulnerable. You, you, you know, you get yourself in relationship where you can confess things and where you can admit that you're not, you don't always feel like a man. I mean, um, Andrew J. Bauman, um, talks a lot about, about the woundedness that comes with so much porn use. And I know Michael John Cusick, who are, both of whom I really like what they have to say about porn. You know, he says that porn allows a man um, to feel like a man without having, without having to act like one. Yeah. You know, it allows you to feel strong without having to be strong. And so if you're going to cure the porn use, you've got to deal with the disconnect between how you want to feel and how you're actually acting. And you've got to bridge that and become an authentic person. That's the way you deal with porn use. It isn't by treating your wife like a object to ejaculate into, which is exactly what um, this is what they all say. Yeah. And, and I, I think too, going off that point, even the title of the, <laughs> the bedraggled love and respect really is a tell on that as well, because is it that men just need respect and is it the men that women just need love? I mean, it, the fact that, that that would be kind of used to say, okay, well, one of us needs one and one of us needs another really speaks to that. The fact that there is, there's not a move towards wholeness. There's a move towards sa like satiating this felt need that we have, again, it's these gender constructs that we go back to that are so, there's are so such take such a concrete reality in in society that we 
they either have to be broken or they have to be lived into 100%, but they are constructs. Is it maybe as a sociologist, you can talk yeah, more about well, that. You know, it's, it's interesting. If you look at all the books that scored in the harmful category, um, the vast majority of them talked about gender stereotypes as if they were gender, like they were gender essentialists, mm -hmm. basically saying that all men are like this, all women are yeah. like this. Um, and even if they admitted that not all men are like this, they still talked as if they were. Yeah. So you had his needs, her needs, which gave the five big needs of men of which sex is one. And then the five big needs of women of which sex is not one, <laughs> right? So men need sex and women don't. Yeah. Um, and that's very much how love and respect talked about it. That's how for women only talked about it. Um, and and you, every man's battle, same thing, right? This is This is a man's need, not a woman's need. And that's just simply not true when you look at the data. Uh, even the idea that that men have a higher libido. Well, in 58% of cases, 58% of marriages, that is true. Okay. But in 19%, she has the higher libido. And in 23%, their libidos are basically shared. Mm -hmm. So to talk about it as if men always are going to want sex more than women is not true. Yeah. Um, or to say that men are visual and women aren't. Well, that may fly with boomer women. Generation Z women are not <laughs> going to agree with you on that. No. Because yeah. we've grown up in a much more sex positive society. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're struggling with lust in huge numbers as well. Yeah. <laughs> So that's really a function of conditioning. It's not a function of biology. In fact, if you look at the Middle Ages, it was assumed that it was the women who were the more visual and the more sexual. Yeah, and, and I think even to your point of libido, you, you talk about how that's not static. I mean, I think that's another kind of silly thing that is throughout this Christian literature that that most of us grow, grew up reading when we are trying to learn about sexuality. And yeah, I mean, it, it does present as kind of this going all the way back to like men are from Venus, women are from Mars, Venus, Mar from yeah. Yeah. someone's uh -huh. from Venus and someone's from Mars, but it has this idea again of like a static, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman. And like you said, even that changes within marriage and within with yeah. with time i mean yeah so I, I think that was really helpful corrective as well uh, yeah. throughout and the I book think, i think the reason that a lot of these books really hold on to gender essentialism is that it is so important um to so many evangelicals that men and women be very very different mm -hmm. because if men and women aren't different then what is the reason for giving men leadership in the church and yeah, let's so talk about that they have to yeah i didn't really talk about that a lot in the book this is just me talking <laughs> yeah, now. i want right? to hear it <laughs> <laughs> but they have to find essential differences between the genders in order to justify why god did what he did um and yet when you look at a lot of those things which they say are gender differences you just find that they're just simply overlapping bell curves this is a really mm. common phenomenon and it seems like people don't understand the concept of overlapping bell curves i like to say you know my my great grandfather was five foot six and my great grandmother was five foot eleven and a half and there were not scientists knocking on their door trying to figure out how this is the case because yeah. everybody knows that just because men are taller than women that doesn't mean that all men are taller than all women we get that with height yeah but we just don't talk about that with regards to libido or being visual or lusting or struggling with pornography or any of that stuff we don't ever acknowledge really in our literature that it could be the other way around yeah and kind of kind of staying with that and and maybe drilling in a bit more to this idea of evangelical culture sanctifying its own views. I want to bring up uh, a passage that you talked about Jody um, and her husband Tyler, and they are she is um, she's basically stuck with all the kids, and um, he comes home every night and is grumpy that she's not giving him sex. So if I can read just a, a quick little passage on that. Okay, so it says, uh, because Jody's spending so much time with the baby and her ear infection, Tina starts regressing, that's the other, the two-year-old, becoming even more clingy and wanting her bottle again. A few nights later, when Tyler comes home, Jody has no idea what she's going to make for dinner. Frustrated, Tyler orders pizza and tells her things need to change. His job is extremely stressful. He needs 
to know that she has home under control. She feels guilty for being selfish. She knows the kids in the housework are her responsibility. So she initiates sex that night to show Tyler that she does care. But as she's drifting off to sleep later, she feels so empty. Jesus, I'm trying to obey you, she prays. I'm trying to fill my husband's cup and take care of his knees. I'm trying to take care for these little precious ones you've given me, but I can't do this anymore. Please change my attitude. Make me the wife Tyler needs. So I'm again struck by this sanctification of gender roles. And I know we've talked about it already, but I'm, I'm hung up on this as well. And, and I'm curious if you have kind of more, more to say on that. And it sounds like you do. So I want to kind of press into that. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things that we found um, in in our study is that believing that the husband uh, should make the final decision, that he is the final authority in the family, that's fine. It doesn't actually affect marital satisfaction or sexual satisfaction. Um, To be honest, we were kind of hoping it would, but it doesn't. Mm. And we reported that. However, and this is a big however, as soon as the couple acts it out, terrible things happen. Mm. So as soon as the husband does make the final decision, even if he consults with his wife first, so even if they discuss it first, but he's the one who makes the final decision, the divorce rate increases seven times. And that's very similar to what the John Gottman Institute found. They, they said that the way they worded it was if a husband does not share power with his wife, that marriage has an 81% chance of self-destructing. Mm. So what we found was very in line with what other studies have found. And What we found so interesting is that most people who say that they believe that the husband should make the final decision do not practice it. Sure, yeah. And so most people are functionally egalitarian, even if they are doctrinally complementarian. And what I, I wrote a long blog post on this telling pastors, please, you need to preach what you practice. Because a lot of pastors are preaching complementarianism. They're preaching that the husband is the final say, that he is the authority, that God holds him responsible, um, that he needs to make the final decision. And that may work for the pastor's family because they're not actually practicing it. You know, yeah. they can yeah. believe it, but they're, they're actually being very emotionally and relationally healthy. But in your congregation, there are people that if they were to practice that, it would lead to abuse. <laughs> it would lead to um, a diminishment of her own feelings of personhood. And that needs to change. And so we need to start preaching what actually works when we know that this doesn't work. And you know, this is, this is a big thing. And maybe this is more of a big picture. Look at our yeah. book. I really believe Jesus's words when he says that you shall know them by their fruit. Mm-hmm. I, we, we spend so much time in the evangelical church saying that we need to be doctrinally pure and that it matters what we believe. Mm -hmm. But Jesus said, the way that you tell whether someone is on track with God is by the fruit. And so if the fruit is nasty, that should tell us that our beliefs, something that we believe about God is wrong because believing and following what God says does not lead to nasty fruit. And so what we have shown is, okay, people, the way we're talking about sex in the evangelical church leads to nasty fruit. The way we're talking about marriage in the evangelical church leads to nasty fruit. Here is what leads to good fruit. (laughs) And so maybe we need to start questioning our interpretations of certain passages and start realizing that God values all of us men and women together. Yeah, love that. That's really well said. And I think that's a word that hopefully anyone that is in ministry listening to this can particularly hear and apply and folks that are not in paid ministry maybe can bug their pastor to take this book and read it because this is super important that the folks get that message okay so we spent a lot of time pointing out the major flaws in best-selling christian literature for marriage and sexuality i wanted to ask you Uh, if there are good examples that couples should check out. I know from a Christian standpoint, maybe not bestsellers, uh, from a Christian standpoint, Dan Allender has some phenomenally helpful work. Um, And from a general perspective, I can think of books like She Comes First, Come As You Are, uh, along with The Joy of Sex that have been great helps in our house. Um, So are there resources, and you can include your own, certainly, that... Yeah, 
Yeah, um, well, we should be we looking have at a couple of courses that people might like. We have an orgasm course because we know that's a big problem mm-hmm. for a lot of women. So um, we have a there's there it's for women, but there's also an add-on that we can get for husbands. So if that's been a, a, a challenge for you, we have that. I totally um, second your nomination of the Allender Center. Um, yeah, Come As You Are is a great book. Uh, in terms of, of porn, like porn and male sexuality, I think anything by Michael John Cusick or Andrew Bauman are very good. They're not as well known, but they should be much better known. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, of the books that we did look at, honestly, I really did like The Gift of Sex by the Penners. I thought it was very well done. Um, I've always been a big fan of Boundaries in Marriage. That scored really highly. So those are very good. Uh, I do have a book, 31 Days to Great Sex, which is fun. It's, it's more of a hey, here's something, here's an idea, do this every mm-hmm. every day for 31 days. You don't have to have, it's not 31 days of great sex, so you don't have to have sex for 31 days straight. <laughs> it's just exercises that build on each other so that sex gets better and you learn how to talk about it, which is mm-hmm. one of the biggest problems couples face. Um, but I'm just praying really hard that we get more healthy books in this in this space because I, I find it difficult to find marriage books to represent, to, to recommend. Um, yeah. And we're trying our best to fix that. I've got so many book deadlines that I'm dealing with right now. Yeah. We've got a bunch of books coming out next year, which, which will expand on this. But um, I think publishers are listening and that's exciting. I know people are listening and mm. that's really exciting. Um, and we've heard some, some great feedback from pastors and counselors about the great sex rescue. The evangelical establishment is not listening and I don't really yep. expect them to, but mm-hmm. we don't need them anymore. So <laughs> We have oh, enough podcasts that. and Twitter and we need to go right <laughs> to the people now. So it's all right. <laughs> yeah, that's great. We can leave them behind and pray that at some point they can catch up. And um, in the meantime, just keep speaking the truth and helping people, which again, just want to commend you on your years of, of blogging and of writing, because I can tell that it's really made an impact in folks that have been run over by the frankly, horrific teachings of the Christian church when it comes to sexuality in particular and marriage on the whole. So you've got a few books coming out. Do you want to tell us about some new, some things to look for down, down the way and maybe how we can follow your work? Yeah. So find me to love, honor, and vacuum.com. We have the bear marriage podcast every Thursday. I, um, so that's fun. And then next Valentine's day, the good guys guide to great sex is launching along with a new and revamped the good girls guide to great sex. It's the 10th anniversary of that Mm -hmm. book. And so I completely rewrote it based on our um, research. So I'm excited that those will be launching on Valentine's day too. So that's great. And then you have a, a, Twitter presence. I know we'll, we'll link to that as well. And yeah. So, well, Sheila, Gregoire, I really appreciate the time and we look forward to, to what's to come with those new books. And if folks haven't already checked this out, the, the great sex rescue, I'm going to put a link in there so that you can order it and certainly to all your work. Uh, But thank you so much for being on public theologians today. Thank you. It's been great. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Music is by Small Fish and by Orbach. The art is by Phil Nellis. You can support the show on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Now go in peace to love and serve.